Hey, everybody. Good to see you here. Wow, I'm really it's a hot mic. Good to see you here in this space. Good to uh, be with you online. If you're worshiping online, thanks so much that you would tune in uh, to us. Uh, recently, Hope's staff and lead team uh, took the Myers-Briggs personality inventory. And those of you who have done that before, you know that it uh, is a way for you to learn about your personalities as well as to help you learn how to relate to others, how you relate in situations and those kinds of things. And it, it provides some information and some understanding. Uh, I was a, a psychology undergrad and then I got my master's in theology and, and counseling, which is kind of interesting because it's kind of how do I relate to God and how I relate to others. I didn't know that when I did it. It just turned out that, wow, that works really well in a sense. Well, uh, so I've taken the Myers-Briggs a, a lot of times in school, and every time I am an ESTP, and uh, we have an image of an ESTP. It's going to show up on the screen in just a moment if it's not there already. I am what's called an entrepreneur, uh, and how it's how I perceive the world and how I make decisions. So, uh, like I said, I've always been an ESTP. I think I've taken this thing like half a dozen times or more in my life. I was an ESTP when I was in my 20s. I'm an ESTP now at in my 50s. And an ESTP, words that describe someone like me are words like smart. <laughs> I'll take it, right? Energetic and perceptive. Someone who loves to be center stage. What a surprise, huh? You all are like, what? That's Rick? I never would have thought that. But yes, I'm spontaneous. Um, that's who I am, and it fits really well. The other side of an ESTP fits quite well as also. I tend to be insensitive. I am impatient. I do not like process. I do not like meetings that involve process. Let's just make a decision, people, is what I say inside my head. An ESTP is someone who has straightforward speech that may not be appealing to others, it says. Isn't that interesting? So I'm reading those negative qualities out loud to my wife, Kelly, and I said, is that me? And she's quickly said, yep. <laughs> I, and here's what I concluded. I am difficult to love. I am difficult to love. All those great qualities, I'll take them. But I also have to take on those other, I have those other qualities as well. It's who I am in a sense. So we're in our series that we're calling Inner Conflict, where we're looking at that there are two worlds that we often live in, that we are in heaven and we're in earth, that we are, have these two kingdoms, that it's our head and our heart, two ways of looking at life, multiple ways really of looking at life and how to live. And this can lead to inner conflict within each of us, that there's this kingdom of God that we desire, but there's these other, con other kingdoms that can come into conflict with how how we desire to live, and that Jesus can bring resolution to those conflicts. So I'm going to read from John chapter 13 today, and I'm going to read the first few verses, but I really want to encourage you, if you haven't read the story, to read, uh, read the whole chapter. I'm going to just going to pick out pieces of it from John chapter 13, and we're looking at the road that Jesus took leading up to 
uh, the cross and resurrection in John. So in John chapter 13, I'm just going to read these words to you. They're not going to be on the screen except for the one final uh, final sentence. So before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour, his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. John lets us know that Jesus is fully cognizant of all that's going on and all that's about to happen. Jesus knows. John says he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. John lets us know more that Jesus knew here. He says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. John wants us to know that Jesus knows who he is and knows why he's here and knows where he will end up. And then John says, so Jesus got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. So Jesus and the disciples, they've gathered for the last, last supper, their last, last Passover meal. That this was the last time that Jesus and the disciples will be together. Jesus knows this. The disciples necessarily do not. And nobody has washed feet. Now, in the first century, and if you've read this before, if you've heard it preached before, if you've heard me preach before, you know that I'll mention this, that that. Washing feet was a common custom in the first century, but it was a servant's responsibility. So evidently in this home, there was no servant present. And so a traveling group like the disciples, they would have taken turns washing feet. And it was a practical thing to do because they're wearing sandals, there's dirt roads, it's muddy and all those things that I'm sure you've heard before if you've heard anyone talk about John chapter 13. But no one has taken responsibility to wash feet. And so the disciples, John tells us, are gathered around the table. And Jesus gets up from the table from where they've gathered. And he decides to wash the disciples' feet because nobody else had taken responsibility. And if you read the story, you see that Jesus washes Peter's feet. And Peter, in just a few moments, is going to demonstrate arrogance and confidence that is beyond his own ability. But Jesus washes his feet. Jesus washes John's feet, and John even says, hints in here that in John chapter 13, that he's the one that's loved by Jesus, the favorite one, he says, in a sense. And Jesus washes his feet as well. Judas is present at the table, and John makes it very clear in those first verses that we just read that Jesus knows who Judas is and what Judas Judas is going to do. And Jesus chooses to wash his feet. 
All the others that are gathered around that table are going to go into hiding when Jesus is arrested, except for John. They're going to desert him, and yet Jesus washes their feet. And then John says this in verse 13, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again and he sat down and he said, do you understand what I was doing? I mean, do you understand what I was doing? I imagine that had to be an uncomfortable scene. John makes it very clear that Jesus knew who he was that Jesus was God in the flesh, God wrapped in skin. The disciples know who Jesus is. He's their teacher. He's their rabbi. He's their, their Lord. And I imagine it was quiet as they watched Jesus dressed like a servant go around the table to each of them and wash their feet. And he says, do you know what I was doing? Do you understand what I was doing? To John makes it clear, there is no indecision in Jesus' heart. He knows they will leave him to face the angry crowd alone. He knows they all have hang-ups, they all have flaws, and they are all difficult to love, whatever their personality type may be. And he chose to wash all of their feet. He washed Peter's arrogant and confident feet. I mean, Peter is going gonna, is gonna to stand up and say, you can't wash my feet. How dare you try to wash my feet? And Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to wash your feet. Jesus says a little later on, you're all going to deny me. You're all going to run away. And Peter says, not me. I would never do that. How dare you say that I would do that? He washed Peter's feet. He washed Judas's feet, the same feet that in a few moments would walk out the door to betray him. He washed the feet of those who would fall asleep while he was praying later. When he asked them to be there for him, he washed their feet. He washed the one who would bring a knife and choose to attack. He washed all of their feet. He says, do you understand what I'm doing? And then he says, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. And then he clarifies this and says, this is a new commandment. Love each other. Do what I just did. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. So Jesus' kingdom strategy is this. 
love through acts of love. Do you understand what I just did, he says? Do as I have done. Love one another as I have loved. Now, last week we talked about how Mary kind of understood this, I think. In the chapter before, Mary has anointed Jesus' feet, and she used this extravagant demonstration of love. And she was humble, and she was unbridled. And now, just a few days later, Jesus is doing something very similar. It's, it's as if Jesus has decided, what Mary did, I'm going to make kingdom policy. And the kingdom policy is this, be selfless, be humble, be unconditional in your love towards others. Wash the feet of those who would love you. Wash the feet of those who seem overconfident. Wash the feet of those who will betray you. But do this. Do you understand what I'm doing? And it doesn't make sense. And if we're most honest, it can cause this inner conflict. Because thinking from an earthly perspective, it doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense in the first century, and it doesn't make sense in the 21st century. Why would I choose to humble myself in front of someone who will, be, who will betray me? Our head says, or excuse me, our heart says, yeah, this is right. What Jesus said, love with acts of love, yeah, that makes sense. That's what I should do. But my head says, there's got to be another way. See, the kingdom we were born into, our world says, don't wash feet. Broken relationships, don't stoop that low to the other person. Feeling lonely, do not let them know. An outsider, don't love the unlovable. If you've been betrayed or may be betrayed, don't love your enemies. Don't serve those who may harm you later. But the kingdom of heaven is different. Jesus put a new commandment into place. He said, love others in the same way. It's a different understanding. It's a, a different strategy. It's a, a different way to operate in our world. And this way, this way that Jesus commands us to operate is so humbling. It is. Loving the way of Jesus is this act of humility. And humility comes from a different kingdom than the one we were born into. See, in one world, humility is weak. And it's lowly. And it will lead to nothing good. While the kingdom of heaven says humility is good and right and powerful in a sense that it demonstrates love. See, but you don't work to become humble. 
it's sort of this quality that you simply can't pursue directly. Like you can't say, I'm going to be humble today. I'm going to demonstrate humility right now. You just can't do that because in doing that, you are being prideful, right? It's going to just doesn't work that way. But humility is a byproduct. It's a byproduct of our actions. So it seems that the longer you live, the more you understand humility, especially when you start going to the doctors, right, as you get older. And you find yourself in places. I've been injured a few different times where I end up at physical therapy, and my physical therapist watches sometimes, and so he may be listening right now and laughing about what I'm going to say, but there are moments where you just feel humbled. You know, like one time I'm there, and he says, here, we're going to take this weight, and you're going to have shoulder surgery, and you're going to lift your shoulders, and you're going to do this. And he hands me two-pound weights, and I'm like, I can lift more than two pounds. Are you kidding me? Give me something bigger. And he says, let's just start with two pounds. And then there, and they put mirrors there. Like, you need a mirror. (laughs) But there I am with those two-pound weights going, I just hurt myself doing that. <laughs> so you don't work to be humble, but the longer we live, the longer we are here, we find humility is brought to us. So Jesus says, do what I would do. Love like I would love. And humility is part of that resolution of the inner conflict and division that happens in our soul. Now, let me offer just a quick side note here. I know last week when I was sharing about Mary worshiping Jesus, that it's really easy to worship Jesus. I mean, this morning, we just spent about 20 or 30 minutes worshiping Jesus, and it was really pretty easy, right? Because Jesus has done some amazing things. I mean, he is kind, he's good, he is God. He chose to die for our sin. He chose to be resurrected and give us power over death. That's pretty good, right? It's easy to worship Jesus. It is much easier to love Jesus than it is to love me. My wife tells me that all the time. And I don't know your personality type, but I know this. And I offer this with the most insensitive, straightforward love an ESTP can offer. Loving you can be a challenge. And it is much easier for me to love Jesus than it is to love you. Not you folks, you folks. It's difficult to love each other. It's challenging to love me. It's challenging to love you. If it was only about loving Jesus, we could get that pretty quickly. But to love each other. Jesus said, do this. Love the same way I love. And one last thing from the Luke story I want you to notice is that the Jews did not sit around at table and with chairs like we do in the 21st century. They reclined. And again, if you've heard the story, you probably know this. It would be a very low table. They would be leaning on their left side, so leaning on their left elbow, 
with their feet away from the table. Again, because it's feet, you don't put feet on the table. So they're, they'd be facing the table, leaning on their left side. I think there's a picture that I have of that. And their right hand then was used for passing food or it would be used for eating. So they're leaning on your left side. And so you're leaning into the next person. And a person's head was literally on the chest of the person reclining to their left. So you would, have, you would be leaning, there'd be someone right there next to you. Personal space in the, in the first century was very different than personal space is in the 21st century. And that's how people would be reclined at a table. And John is likely sitting next to Jesus because Peter, in, in the story, Peter signals to John to, to ask Jesus, who is it who's going to betray us? Who is it? Remember, Peter has a sword. Peter wants to know who it is. And so John, sitting next to Jesus, could easily lean back, because he's leaning into Jesus, and ask, who is it, Lord? Who's the one? Now, I read this earlier last week, and it it was, it was great. I, it was one of those moments you're prepping messages and you're just like, oh, this is good stuff. This is good. And you know, I love that I've been reading this story for 40 years or more. And then that there's this thread that is found. And it take, you pull on it and you find yourself going places that in 40 years you've never seen in this story. This author said it's likely that Judas was on the other side of Jesus. So Jesus is leaning on his left, and Judas is on his left. So Jesus' head is leaning into Judas's chest while they reclined for their meal. See, he must have been there because Jesus and Judas also had a personal conversation at the table that nobody was aware of, and he was speaking with him. Now, the place on the left of the host, and Jesus is the host of this dinner, the place on the left was the place of highest honor. It was kept for the most intimate friend. So it's possible that when the meal began, Jesus may have said, hey, Judas, I want you to sit by me tonight. And when I read that, that blew me away. That the very invitation of Judas to a seat next to him was this appeal to his heart and an act of humility by Jesus. Judas, I want you sitting right here. That Jesus pursued Judas right to the very end, even to the very last night and the very last hour, that Jesus loved him like only Jesus could love. And then as I pulled on that thread, there's even a little bit more that John tells us that Jesus had taken a piece of bread and he dipped it into something and handed it to Judas. 
to share a bite, to break off a bite and to share this at a meal was a mark of a special affection. Now, that, that's great. That's, that's beautiful. But then this writer says this. That wasn't considered unusual for Jesus. And suggested that it's as if this very act of love that Jesus demonstrated wasn't unusual to the disciples. That Jesus was so much in the habit of showing love toward Judas that it didn't even seem unusual. That this wasn't a one-night occurrence where Jesus was showing incredible love toward him. That Jesus loved Judas's dark heart again and again and again. And sadly, Judas would remain unmoved, but Jesus pursued him right to the end. That Jesus loved like only Jesus could love. And he commands you and I to love like only Jesus can love. And it's not easy, and it seems unlikely, and it's impractical, and it's even inconvenient, and Loving Jesus, sure, I can do that. Serving Jesus, you bet, I can do that. But loving a betrayer or loving an arrogant person in my life or loving the loud mouth at work or the one who steals your joy, no, I can't do that. Yes, Jesus says you can love the way I love. The, the one who speaks evil behind your back, the one who, I'm supposed to serve that person too. Yes, love that person as well. Pursue those who might betray you? Yes. Pursue them, even to the last hour. And we could say, but you don't know what they said about me. You don't know what they did to me. And Jesus says, love like only I can love. It is selfless, and it never quits. It's sacrificial and it's forgiving and it is impractical and inconvenient and it is unlikely in this world. But it leads to humility and it leads to resolution. And this command, it seems so simple. Love others the same way Jesus loves. But let me remind you that you are difficult to love. And I am difficult to love. And the entire New Testament, a case can easily be made, the entire New Testament, the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, the letters of John and James and all the others, they all have one theme explained, and that is how we are to love each other. This simple idea of loving others brings resolution to our hearts, and it took a whole collection of letters for us to understand it. But when we can love even the unlovable, it changes us. And it changes them. And it is, in a sense, an act of defiance in the face of the evil in our world. That we would stay there, that we would, I was going to say we would stand, but really we would bow and say there is another way to live. And when we can do that, 
It's a step towards resolving any conflict we may have between this world and the world that we long for. The world that we sing will be here, the kingdom of heaven on earth. Will you stand with me for closing prayer? And if you're here, if you're watching, I pray you just be comfortable standing, sitting, wherever you might be. Let's all pray together. So God, I thank you for the church gathered. That as we have been worshiping you, I pray, God, that this would be inspiring to those who are in attendance, but God, more so that it would be an honor to you. And God, I pray that you, your people, the church, would be people who can love you and love others. That God, in a world that says that is not convenient, that that's impractical and that will not work, it can create conflict. Because the way I have to operate in my office is different than the way I operate in my home and different than the way that I operate in church. And God, I pray that we would be able to resolve those conflicts, that we would be of one heart and one mind, one directed towards the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.